been reading a lot lately oh yeah uh i read children of huron oh, you did, recommendation you did. yeah what do you Christmas. think you know i really liked it yeah it's uh it's strangely one of the more accessible works by talking i think i mean it's kind of a deep lore cut and it's kind of like um the language is kind of uh how would you say like a high speech it's a bit kind archaic of, uh, yeah i'd say the mode is more archaic than the language actually yeah even so, like the language and the story and the characters, um, it's a very good story. It's very exciting and yeah. very interesting and very tragic and extremely tragic. I really like how um, irrational the characters are. There's depth to their psychology. I think. Yeah, there is this incredible nuance to the characters that I think Tolkien gets maligned for having very sort of not being a good writer, just coming up with this interesting <laughs> world building. But I think that's just really unfair to him. I mean, yeah, somebody said that at some point and then people are just repeating it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at his works, it's obviously not true. Yeah. And this is one of the best examples of that. Yeah, so. because Turin is such a such a complex and interesting character. And is like you say, he's extremely irrational, but he's very driven by emotion. And he's very driven by, I think, thoughts of revenge mm. and thoughts of having his whole, you know, his whole family mistreated in that mm. horrible way. And, you know, it's... I really had to go back and look at the maps and try to place myself in the law yeah. a bit and um, read bits of the Silmarillion and kind of placing myself a bit. And after doing that, just getting into like the story and the situations, uh, it's really like an exciting and uh, well-written narrative. It's one of the more page turny like things I've read in quite a while, actually. Yeah, it's, it's really rich, I yeah. think. It's yeah. a really rich story. Yeah, the, the world feels very rich, but also like, like the situations. Yeah, 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 like the narrative and yeah. just the... The characters. Just say, the, the drama is so, so tense and yeah. so exciting. Mm. And some of the dramatic situations that unfold are just so crazy and, yeah. and horrible, really. Yeah. But I love it. It's one of the best things he's written, I think. And he's written a lot of yeah, excellent things. A lot of people call it his best work. I would not disagree with that myself. Oh. I mean, I don't think I'd actually put it above The Lord of the Rings. Mm. But it's kind of <clears throat> dissimilar things because uh, yeah, the, the, the very Tale different. of Turin has yeah. this really tragic, heroic motif that is so complex and yet so mm. sort of timeless mm. and uh, archaic at the same time. Mm. It's uh, quite a different beast than The Lord of the Rings. Very much so. And, you know, there's this distinction, which, you know, we both listen to this other podcast called uh, The Tolkien Professor, and he talks about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings being written from the perspective of hobbits. Yeah. Whilst Silmarillion is written from the perspective of elves. And this is more from the perspective of men. A rare occurrence in his legendarium. It's totally makes it quite different, actually. And that it's thought out in that way is quite interesting, I, I think. Um, yeah, it's not just written from the perspective of men. It, it deals with yeah, humanity it's, it's concerned in such, with men. A, yeah. such an, an interesting way. But you, you can say that Lord of the Rings also deals with humanity to a fair degree. But it also deals with the sort of the decline of the elves and, and the mm. last struggle of uh, Sauron and, and yeah. the remnants of Melkor. And... This kind of shows more of the human society, I think. 
from like a completely different point of view. Yeah. It does, and it shows mortality, and it shows sort of. Um, I guess that's what makes it sort of more accessible than a lot of his other writings in the Silmarillion sort of tone is, uh, is that it gauges with sort of human psyche. Mm. Because I, I find the way he portrays elves and write about elves, it's very interesting because it's totally different than the way he writes about humans. Like elves don't die. They're mm. just indelibly connected to, to the world in a way that humans aren't. And it all, also ties in with his uh, Catholic faith, actually. Mm that humans sort of have a different, like, we don't really know where we go when we die, but we go somewhere different. We, like, there's other plans for us or whatever. But the way it unfolds in the story is just really sad. Mm. And I also like how, you know, sometimes whether you have prequels or stories from the, you know, they hinted at before, yeah. it kind of thins out the world. But this really just makes it feel larger and wider and, like, you go to Nargothron and Dol yeah. Roman and these places... You've heard of Gondolin and stuff, and um, I agree with you. Often, the sort of the magic or the enchantment of those mm. hinted at stories and locations can sort of become really mundane once mm. you learn the story. But I think the case is the opposite with the yeah. Tale of Turin, because I think uh, Turin is only mentioned like once or twice in the Lord of the Rings. He's mentioned once as a sort of a warrior that killed uh, the dragon mm. in connection with Sam and Frodo and the killing of the giant spider, and He's mentioned once by Elrond as sort of one of the elf friends of old, yeah. which is interesting because if you read, <laughs> yeah, if you read the tale, he's not really <laughs> an elf friend. He sort of uh, disowns all his elf friends and just goes off on his own and does his own thing and sort of ruins everything mm. and ruins Nargathon. Yeah, he fucks things up. But actually, uh, in the initial conception of the Silmarillion, Turin Turinbar was actually meant to be there at the end of the world to kill Morgoth. Oh, really? To strike the final blow with his oh. black sword. He would have liked that. I yeah, think. and that conception was still going when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. So that may be some, something he meant when Elrond called him one of the great elf friends. Yeah, because yeah, he's such a... Dis- I mean, he's so respected by the elves, yeah, but he's, he his actions are so disappointing. Yeah, um, but ostensibly at that period they would have known that sort of prophecy that he would at the end of days strike the final blow against Melkor. Mm. But you know, it, it actually also contains one of my new favourite characters oh, yeah? by Tolkien. And he's so great. It's the dragon, Glorum. Glorum, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's such a mischievous and manipulative and monstrous creature. And he features a lot of tendencies that are not so normal with dragons. He uses, like, hypnotism and spells. I mean, he has a fiery breath, but there's so many other elements of him as his threatening being. He's just this extension of Morgoth's will, but it's really much his own character, such of this devious trickster as well. I think in general, Tolkien just writes interesting dragons. I think Smaug is also Mm. really interesting in the way that he sort of has this enchanting way of speaking Mm. and you Mm. you should be careful speaking with a dragon, for instance. And the whole dragon sickness that you can sort of get, which is sort of a metaphor for greed and how it can disrupt people's lives. Mm. But you see more of Glowring's actions in a way here because he's attacking Orgothrond and then he's manipulating people against each other. Yeah, and he's, he's a lot more terrifying mm. than Smog, And he doesn't even fly. Like, he's sort mm. of a prototype dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Slithering. Yeah, but he, he just plays this psychological mm. game with everyone he meets yeah. and just destroys them. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, just a great book, like mm. the way Christopher Tolkien compiled it. Uh, 
he died recently. He did, and rest in peace. He, yeah. he did an immense and great amount of work. Yeah, very great important. work yeah. with just taking care of Tolkien's legacy and, and works. And he was also very important while Tolkien lived. Someone to, you know, ask questions about his manuscript and gain some insight into how his written word is being perceived. So he was a, was a good writing partner as well. Wow. I've been reading some too. Mm. And I've been reading a book called Coming Into the Country by John McPhee. Oh, yeah. And it's about Alaska. And a lot of it's kind of interesting uh, in relation to the recommendation I had today, okay, which is okay. the Highway of Cheers. Yeah. But it's written in the 70s. And during the 70s, there were a lot of agreements between the native tribes and, the, in this case, the U.S. government. There's been so much contention and troubles about this because of oil and land rights and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So much hatred brewing. But mm. It's uh, a really interesting book in that he basically just goes around. There's three faces to it. There's uh, At first, he, he's like on a trip. In Is the this country. A fiction? It's not fiction. No, it's nonfiction. It's nonfiction. And it's genuine interviews and stuff. Okay, okay. John McPhee is very famous for having written some great books on geology. Um, oh. But uh, this one is more more social commentary. Mm. And at first he's like traveling with, with some geologists and sort of... Um, because they're sort of picking and choosing which areas to preserve of Alaska. And then the second phase of the book is them traveling with a bunch of officials to designate new capital for Alaska. Mm. Because of contentions between uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage and uh, like where to place the capital. And then at the end, it's sort of really into the wilderness or, or like the edge of civilization. Mm. Why? Or like talking to people who like really want to get away from civilization. And I find it very compelling reading, especially oh, especially the last part mm. where he goes into this tiny community, which is like on the edge of wilderness and talks to people who go into the country, as they say, to like trap and or uh, mine for gold or like uh, find gold. And uh, there's just this incredibly diverse cast of people that choose to go into the wilderness. But there are these commonalities that I find very interesting and some things that I just found very compelling on its own, like he's talking about how a lot of the time, like the areas and the places they live in are so fucking ugly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't put it that way, but it's quite like anesthetic. There's junk everywhere and stuff. But he's talking about how how one person he interviewed or uh, I don't quite remember in what relation it was, but he said that survival is incompatible with aesthetics. And I found that very interesting. Like you, you can't really yeah. go about Decorating. caring about Art Deco or yeah. you know Art Nouveau or whatever when all you really care about is getting enough meat into your system to mm. survive the year. I just found that really like mm. we live so sort of distant from the sort of hand to mouth bare subsistence and and really just like the connection with nature there is not some like poetic thing. It's just this really really almost not feral but very natural thing you know that we're so distanced from that it's just a completely different mode of thought and i i found it very interesting to get into that mindset how different it really is and how modernity and society is so pervasive that it's changed our entire sort of mentality that sounds very interesting have you seen this um, documentary by Werner Herzog, Encounters at the End of the World? I have, yes. Because that's at Antarctis. It's so funny. Yeah. It's really good. I love the sort of the sad monologue he goes on when the, the, <laughs> the one penguin goes yeah. off into the, like, off to die, basically. Mm. Yeah, it's really funny. Werner Herzog is a funny guy. 
His documentaries are really good. Did you see Grizzly Man? I did, yeah. That's mm. another sad yeah. sort of tale. <laughs> and that takes place in Alaska too. And that shows sort of how a, a naive approach mm. to, to going back to nature really can end because he ultimately didn't have any respect for the animals. He was naive as fuck. Yeah. And also in relation to sort of uh, a lot of the first peoples and the privateers and the and mm. the native people and the coming into the country book, like the connection they have with nature mm. as opposed to how Western society views it. I mean, it's often been talked about and sort of characterized, and mm. but it's it's a different mode. And I think a lot of Westerns don't really know how to approach mm. that. But we have the same thing in Norway, like with the Sami population and, and stuff sure. like that. And... Uh, it's just terrible, really, how native people have been treated mm. all over the world, like in Australia, too. Yeah, they're always marginalized. Yeah, uh, but, but I think, I mean, that's sort of a, mm. a really sort of a axiomatic statement that seems quite pointless. But my point is maybe how pervasive it is. Like on their all continents, you have this yeah. mi- mistreatment of people who want to live closer in touch with nature. Mm. It's fucking depressing. One of the things that's interesting I found about encounters... Yeah, the Werner Herzog film. ...meeting these people that have chosen to live in this very desolate, that have kind of left our parts of society to live... In the most extreme, extreme environment possible, almost, and there's on something, Earth. I mean, even it's a collective, there's something a bit lonely and a bit, you know, that you get the feeling they are loners. <laughs> They're quite, um, you know, you need to be in a very specific mindset to choose that yeah i mean if you really like to to see different concerts every night you shouldn't go to antarctica (laughs) and just yeah it seems incredibly like it would take a toll on your psyche almost no matter how which way you slice it Mm. but it's a it's a really fine movie i think but you've been traveling as well lately i have i have where have you been i've been to thailand actually with some friends and uh nice it was it was an interesting experience. You went for three weeks? Yeah, three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. Was it before or after Christmas? I left on Christmas Eve, actually. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that was... Uh, did really have a Christmas. Did you stay at one place or did you move around? Uh, we moved around a bit. First we stayed at one apartment and then we uh, went to this island called Kutau, which was interesting in and of itself. Because the island is like... There's really only Westerners there. Okay. <laughs> so it's and a holiday island. Kind yeah, of. It's, it's a holiday island. It's sort of a party island almost. Yeah. And there's mostly Burmese people, like from Myanmar, working there. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, they are severely mistreated by Thai people. They're mm. seen as sort of lower class and made to do menial tasks and mm. stuff. So it's a sort of weird vibe. But in general, like the people were really nice and uh, a really good time. But it's just weird to come from there because the place we stayed initially is more of a place where Thais go to vacation. So it's mainly Thai people. And it, the, the vibe is just completely different. Yeah, like, I would expect um, so, yeah. There's no... Like, what they find interesting to do on their holidays is completely different than what Westerners like. What do they like? Well, they basically like sitting and eating with their families mm. and, like, uh, staying with, you know, family and, like... They don't really bathe so much as they no. just sort of uh, go up to the knees and sort of walk a bit in the water. Mm. And if they bathe, they bathe like fully clothed. Okay. <laughs> and in general, they have like, they, they don't like to go out in the sun. So they have like, they full coverage like during yeah. the day mostly. Because 
I guess. Yeah, they, I mean they, they have they, the sun. But I guess they want like whiter skin. Yeah. You see this like uh, mm. skin whitening creams yeah, all everywhere yeah, and yeah. stuff, and in the commercials they're generally super white, mm-hmm. which I find kind of sad. Yeah. Like uh, that whole ideal. Yeah, it really is disturbing somehow. Yeah. But at the same time, I found the vibe there kind of more chill, mm. like less, I don't know, fake. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In a way. Like, Utah was great, but it was definitely not somewhere you want to go if you want to engage with Thai culture. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it's just somewhere you go to lounge on the beach and party. It's and like Ibiza or something. Yeah. It definitely feels a lot like Ibiza. Like, there was uh, all these beach like uh, bars and, and restaurants and stuff. And the music they played was just so fucking terrible. This is so typical. It's always like that. Yeah, it was like this. It's some of the worst music mm. I've ever heard in my life. Like oh. literally like this extreme side-trance techno mm. shit at like full volume while you're trying to just fucking lie on the beach and read a book. Mm. And it was like <laughs> all the time. You know, in the evenings, that's okay. No, they turn it on at like uh, yeah. 2 p.m. When the, <laughs> when the hardcore house started. Yeah. It wasn't even good electronical. Like, it okay. was re- really, like, super terrible. Another fascinating thing <laughs> about Thai music, like, okay. in general, when they play, like, Western pop music and stuff, mm. it's fake music. Well, it's like a, an imitation or... Yeah, yeah, it's all covers. Yeah. But it's done often extremely well. Mm. You often don't recognize it until it's like something's off and it feels like it feels like uh yeah, the vocals uh, difference or something yeah, yeah but it feels a bit like having a bad trip or something like <laughs> something you thought you knew is like slightly <laughs> off and it's really oh. like and it's all over like all songs like all the music you think of if it's like western pop mm. they've done a version of it and it's quite convincing i guess it's about rights it's about rights yeah, yeah. it's about uh, the mafia i think like they have a system there. Like if you want to have genuine music, you have to pay for it. Like in Norway yeah. or any Western country, like you can't mm. just use music without having rights for it. You have to pay, right? Mm. And so they will apparently like extort people who don't use proper music. So they use this fake music instead to get around that system. Mm. But it's everywhere, so it's weird. Yeah, that does sound kind of surreal. Yeah, there's a lot of surreal shit going on. <laughs> Another thing that was like incredibly fucking like the traffic there is just fucking insane yeah i still have heard and uh, and they like on the highway they like ride like three or four people to a tiny little motorbike Mm. like an entire family highway speeds and there's like people just use the lanes however they fucking want but is it like other places in asia where you you don't really have crossroads you just have to start walking in the middle of the uh traffic and it kind of makes room for you no, you, you have places where you can cross the road, and okay. it's actually uh, better than some of the Western countries. I've okay, been. okay, okay. But uh, yeah. that aspect, but mm. but you sort of have to cross at your own peril. They won't just stop. But the thing with the highways is, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's fucking crazy. And people ride on the, the back of pickup trucks, mm. like uh, maybe seven, eight people at a time, and they just fucking sleep when they're going down the highway. <laughs> like, if, if something happens, and it does all the time, yeah. like, you're just going to fucking fly... Like uh, 200 yards away oh, and just yeah. fucking face plant and die immediately. And it's just, they don't give a shit. Oh, <laughs> like, my God. And it was horrible because we, one day we decided to take a taxi. Like we, we got back from the island place mm. and we were going back to the apartment. And um, we had all our bags and shit. And we were like, we need a taxi. So we walked for a good while to find a taxi. 
And we did eventually find a taxi. And okay. it was this guy with a pickup truck. And he just put us in the back of the pickup truck. And he didn't even close the tailgate. And he just fucking <laughs> drove down the highway with us for like 30 minutes. Oh, and it was terrifying. Oh, no. <laughs> like there was literally nothing to keep anything, anyone of us from falling out. Like, and just driving like a madman. And traffic was fucking insane. It was just... Yeah, that does fair sound for scary. my fucking life. Like, if you want the unpleasant recommendation, do that. Yeah, unpleasant taxi. Yeah, that was maybe appreciate uh, life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fucking crazy. Yeah, that was a good trip. Yeah, but I don't recommend nice. the music. No, no, it's it's kind of interesting. And now I feel I want to hear this uh, kind of slightly off version of a Western. Uh, yeah, I don't even know where the fuck they got it. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's Western covers, but uh, generally Western covers are like trying to do their own spin on things. This was like trying to emulate the original recording well, as much as possible. Yeah, isn't it just like local people who have, you know, done I, as I good mean, a job? If they are local people, they're really fucking talented. Mm. Because you had soundalikes for like all the famous artists, like Bruno Mars, and like they sounded really similar. Oh, really? So, but I guess it must be an industry. Yeah, I, I guess it is. I guess it is. Mm. And uh, super talented people doing it, but it, it just, it's a bit like living in bizarro land. Like <laughs> it's just something's always slightly off. So, yeah. That's really funny. How was your Christmas, by the way? Yeah, it was nice. Went to the north of Norway with my North, family Northway, Norway, no, north of nowhere, north of nowhere. Yeah, just hang out with my parents and my brother and your some crew. That was uh, very pleasant. Yeah, we've dialed down the hassle over the years. Yeah, uh, we do decorate, but you know, there's uh, it's not so much obligatory things. Yeah, it's much more about you know having a good time. I think that's eating good food. That's honestly the core of what Christmas should be about. Like yeah. it's such a stressful time for so many people. Yeah, yeah. I don't get it. I don't know why people subject and themselves it's such to that. A capitalist fucking time. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Just fucking buy mm. all you can. Yeah, yeah. I I can't stand it's that. Disgusting. But um, that was nice, and I uh, came back here for New Year's Eve. Lived to tell the tale. I lived to tell the tale. That was nice. Yeah, yeah. And I started um, to read more non-fiction lately. And specifically, I've gotten into film theory. Film theory? Concerning unpleasant movies. Oh, yeah. Um, there's this book I came across quite randomly. It's called Feel Bad Film. Uh, nice. By this guy called Nikolai Lubecker. And it, it's really good, actually. It's very interesting. And what he does, he, well, he sets a framework. Films presenting a catharsis that is not fulfilled so that you're kind of expecting a result that's withheld from the director. Smashed away from you. And he talks about films from Haneke and Frontier and, you know, all these... The good old, uh, the good old ones. Very interesting directors and their films. And he uses this as a way to look at different aspects of, you know, how films can be unpleasant. Are they uneasy? You know, like you're hanging on, you're waiting for things to happen, not sure where to place yourself. Yeah, tense. Or are they more directly provocative? Yeah. Um, he has a really interesting analysis of Dogville, I found. He talks about uh, Frontier's um, intention of bringing out your inner bastard. Yeah. He does good analysis of films and then talks about how they work and the intentions of the filmmakers and um, what the function of this kind of cinema is and its usefulness. Yeah. Um, What's it from, by the way? 
2015. Right, right. It's interesting that he talks a lot about the intent of the directors in this death of the author sort of um, like a lot of people have moved beyond that, but I think a lot of people are reticent to talk about intention in regards to movie making. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he contextualizes it a lot through avant-garde movements, both like the classical and the neo-avant-garde. Yeah. And he looks at Bettelbrecht and Artaud in their kind of intentions towards an audience. What are they thinking? Like, uh, how do you relate to a spectator? Yeah. So Brecht kind of wants to remove artifice. He doesn't want pathos. He doesn't want you to invest feeling because he wants you to look and think critically and how these kind of concepts of ideas are realigned and explored in contemporary cinema. Yeah, Brecht, for instance, was incredibly socially conscious. Very, yeah. He had a social project. And so that took a huge part of his Mm. sort of uh, artistic output. Mm. was central to his artistic output. Yeah. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the last episode about uh, James Quant, this film journalist who coined the term New French Extremism. Yeah. And he, he kind of devalues these films a bit. He finds them speculative and kind of uh, provocative without substance. That's what he accuses them of initially. Though he has a, a later essay where he kind of... Um, I mean, he, he doesn't start liking this film, but he kind of uh, talks a bit I think, more about... I um, think speculative is an interesting word to use. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, Lubecker has the very distinct idea that these films are humanist yeah. and that the projects of Hanukkah and Fontier and Catherine Brelart are very bound in, you know, how you relate to your spectator in a more like a meta sense that you're trying to discuss difficult subject matter... And if you just relieve your audience with a happy ending or with a conclusion that's... Um, uh, Easy to digest. Yeah, yeah, very digestible. Uh, then you're kind of short-changing them, essentially. Yeah. And they'll just leave the theatre and they will not be thinking about the film, essentially. As opposed to engaging with it and thinking critically and, well, and moving some brain cells around. They put you in a situation where you're... You need to relate to what you've seen. And uh, that's kind of what we're trying to do here as well. Yeah, we're trying yeah, yeah. To but I think it's interesting. Mm. I think that applies to all art, like uh, all good art mm. does try to, or doesn't even try to, I'm not even talking about the intention of art, but mm. all good art has uh, an ability to move you in one direction or another, or at least force you to to engage with it at some point. Like art that doesn't engage you on any level, I would like that's... Bad art, in my opinion. Well, there's a, there's a lot of contemporary art that exists within a conversation and a context. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. that I mean, if you if you're not engaged in that, it might seem superfluous. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of criticisms towards modern art and uh, postmodern art and post yeah. postmodern art is that oh that that's stupid or I could have done that or well you didn't do that first of all and second of all it exists within this uh, ongoing conversation about art and what is art. And, and this there's also like a underlying ideas about what an artist is and what an artist does. Yeah. That it's connected to like emotion or passion or that it has uh, like a decorative element um, which are, you know, not necessarily relevant for a lot of contemporary art, I think. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of art, and also literature and mm. also movies, mm. of course, like some art 
just require some context to get the full enjoyment out of it. And oh, I think absolutely. A lot of yeah. people are very unwilling to engage with the idea that you need context or, or yeah. a backstory or, or more works behind it to enjoy something. Yeah, it's, it's, I think uh, it's very prevalent in especially modern art discussion. Yeah, there's always a cultural context and there's always, you know, media literacy. Yeah. It's like an acquired taste. You know, if you really want to enjoy wine, you're going to have to work for it. Uh, or you could just be an alcoholic and you'll enjoy it in another way. But well, what uh, I mean is like <laughs> if, you, if you want to get the full intention out of a really good meal, then you need to train your taste buds. Of course. Uh, and, and also there's a lot of just mm. bad art movies bullshit that really muddies the water mm. and, and makes that harder to sort of makes it harder to communicate that to people who might not be willing to take that leap mm. or whatever. You uh, saw this um, piece, no doubt, was quite popular. There's a art piece with a banana taped to a wall with some yeah, duct tape, yeah. which was kind of controversial. It was sold for a lot of money. And then the yeah, other, and then it was, it became a huge meme too. Yeah, and this other artist shows up and he, he eats the banana as a performance. So, and a lot of people find that quite provocative. But of course, seeing it in the context of the artist himself, he's a guy who works with a lot of... Uh, humor and uh, he has this uh, bone sculpture with this giant hand where he's cut off all the fingers but the middle one he, he kind of plays a lot around with humor and situation and the absence of things <laughs> yeah. apparently yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I would have liked it if uh, a bigger artist came and ate the artist who ate the banana yeah you have then you'd sort Saturn of eating his yeah, yeah. son mm. and I, I think there should be like more uh, hostility and uh, and fights in the art world. Mm. Yeah, I think there's plenty of hostility. <laughs> no, but like... Uh, not, not so much physical violence, perhaps. No, but you should have like art duels. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like wizard duels. Yeah, yeah like, no, but like you should make it more like a sport. Yeah. That would make people really enjoy it. But that could be an art piece, you know. Yeah, like who can paint the fastest. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should have like a action paint duel with... Splashing paints on each other. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, well, like the thing of like sportifying something, because often in music discussions, I always hear people, especially when mm. people talk about guitarists. Okay, okay. They talk about like, he's the fastest guitarist. Yeah, yeah that's very true. And yeah, he's yeah. like able to play all Ingram his Armstein. notes. <laughs> and also like in rap, like he's the fastest rapper mm. and he can, he can rap like, mm. like you can't catch a fucking word he's saying. Yeah. Like, what are you trying to communicate? So... Yeah. I often hear it from people who, are, who aren't particularly interested in music mm. or maybe just interested in one aspect of music, mm. like guitar or mm. like fast rapping skills. But I think that's sort of incredibly antithetical to the idea of music as sort of a, a way of communicating mm. and expressing yourself. Yeah, you're kind of fronting the ideas of specific skill or craft as a competition, yeah. as a goal. How do you tell that he's the best musician? Oh, you can tell because he's the fastest musician. <laughs> yeah. And it's important to be the best musician. Yeah. And then you're kind of missing the point, essentially. And that's I think, is a problem with a lot of art as well that you're looking at. But it's an incredibly old point of view. Like, that was the Olympic uh, Games. Like, initially you had uh, competitions in art and you had competitions in singing and poetry mm. and stuff like this. Mm, yeah. So... The duel, huh? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's been pervasive mm. for a long time. Mm. Well, rhetoric duels where you yeah. present your arguments. And I don't think it's mm. always a negative thing. Like, uh, in the 60s you had this sort of friendly duel between the Beatles and... Uh, 
I was about to say the Pet Shop Boys, but uh, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Be- interesting. <laughs> the Beach Boys, which have the album that yeah. sounds, of course. But Beach yeah, Boys. the friendly duel sort of between them of writing the best music, and they sort of made each other reach higher and like mm. uh, have higher aspirations, or even just within the Beatles of Lennon and McCartney. Sure, not all competitive instinct is terrible, or against like an artistic mm. frame of mind. But mm. I think it's sad when you. When you're not willing to sort of engage with the medium. Well, it becomes derivative. If how you judge a piece of art is how difficult is it to draw this thing, then you're just comparing yourself to, is it something I can do? I could never do this. Well, sometimes it's about doing or not doing. Like I see, especially on Reddit, I mm. see it's one of my personal pet peeves okay. is, is what is upvoted as good art on Reddit. Because it's generally, well, very often it's just this quite like realistic portrayal yeah, yeah, yeah. of a yeah. moderately beautiful woman mm. with some cool lighting mm. and that's that's it that, mm. like that's good art mm. and that gets uploaded so much or like even just people well often to just people copying a photo and drawing it yeah. really photorealistically yeah. and like those are the things that really appeal to people mm-hmm. Because then you're just looking at the skill. You're thinking of how difficult is this to... Exactly. And it um, is very skillful. But is it artistic? Like, it's generally very not artistic in mm. my point of view, which, of course, you can argue is totally bullshit. And you can view it any way you want. There's no, like, true answer in art, of course. But in my opinion, that's more craftsmanship than art. Mm. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, a lot of those types of works, they don't carry so much intent they're mostly an exercise in, you know, how do you recreate texture or likeness, which is at times very impressive and interesting. A lot of good artists, this is their main focus as well. Yeah. But if it's just a portrait that doesn't carry much meaning or emotion or character, you know, there's a big difference. We're talking about drawing, for example, in terms of when you're making a portrait, if you can capture the person's essence uh, or if it kind of looks like them a lot of people who are very technically skilled kind of lack it becomes uncanny because you can see that it's the person but it's kind of it doesn't capture their essence or well personality. you know sometimes you have these cartoonists who just really with a few simple lines yeah, characters they, they pick up no, not necessarily caricature but they pick up like the essence of just some body language or some expression that very simply and sufficiently captures what someone looks like. Yeah, those that, are two very different skills. No, but I you would know? call that a good character because that's mm. really about capturing the essence or rather uh, discarding the extraneous things that aren't vital to expressing that person. I'm not talking about caricature because caricatures... No, no, I'm not talking a, about caricatures. I'm talking that mm, it would mm. be a good character. You're not necessarily a caricaturist if you are able to do that. I'm just saying it's, it's akin to a good caricature, right? But my problem with that word is that it kind of brings up these ideas of... You know, taking certain features, exaggerating them comically. Yeah, and, and also, of course, simplifying it. And there's this term called flanderization, yeah, yeah. which <laughs> refers to the way the character Ned Flanders has been simplified over the years in Simpsons to just being this incredibly two-dimensional. Well, this always been two-dimensional. It's a cartoon, <laughs> but it's a cartoon. <laughs> uh, like really simple mm. character. When mm. in the beginning, he was a lot more nuanced, right? Mm. So I agree with you there. But um, there's also this thought that this thought of art is pretty new and it's very modern. Like it came with modernity before the Renaissance. You weren't an artist. You were just a craftsman, right? But there's still great works of art to be found before the Renaissance. So how we view art is such a changing and difficult to grasp thing. It's always sort of hard to pin down. There's a lot of 
cultural history that's bound up with the Italian perspective of the Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we really started to write art history. So a lot of the base theories that we're connected to has that direct lineage. Of course, and that's a very Eurocentric sort of point of view too. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about um, European perspective. Yeah, yeah. But even here, you know, there's, uh, there's such a great variety of approaches available. Mm. And having that as a baseline approach for general population, it kind of reduces the medium because you, you're looking at very specific aspects and you're not opening yourself up to the very wide potential of usage. It's like you're only listening to singer-songwriting music. And that's fine if you like that, but so much to engage with other yeah, genres. Or, or let's say you, you won't listen to classic music. I mean, you think classic music is just one type of thing. Yeah, I think like most prevalently like these days, you'll have people who refuse to either listen to rock music or refuse to listen to rap music or hip hop music or whatever. Or you'll have these old hip hop heads who refuse to engage with uh, newer forms. They hate the mumble stuff. Yeah, they hate the mumble stuff. I saw this brilliant uh, video today. Um, it's on the mm. the Neil Drop, which is a YouTube channel of uh, music reviewer mm. Anthony Fantano, and he's great. He's funny. He's uh, very nuanced in his discussions on music, yeah. and he was just he was talking about this YouTube video, this song, which was called "The Death of Mumble Rap." Okay, <laughs> and I, I listened to that song and the video, and it's just so fucking cringy. Well, it sounds it, embarrassing. Yeah, it's super embarrassing, and it's just these old, out of touch fucking rappers who think rapping fast equates to them having something important to say, mm. and they just hate what the kids are doing, mm. and it's just fucking sad. It's like boomers hating video games. Yeah, it's it's just pathetic. And he made a really funny video on that. So yeah, you can cool. really tell people are getting old when they start complaining about what the kids are doing. Yeah, like. Just times are changing. <laughs> get with it or get out of the way. Like Bob Dylan said, <laughs> yeah. times they are changing. Yeah. What do you think about Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Literature Prize? Well, um, I guess I'd have mixed feelings about that. In one sense, he certainly has contributed to language, culture and written imagery. I'd say poetry too. Yeah, poetry. Well, I mean... It's poetry and then there's poetry, you know what I mean? His lyrics, they don't function the same way as a lot of poetry does. Like, you know, certain types of poetry, they require a lot of work. You have to concentrate on them to get them to give meaning. You can't just put a tune to them and they're entertaining, you know what I mean? It has a different function than a lot of written poetry, I think. Well, I'd say it works without having to parse the poetry because you have the music as well, right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. It's very easy to place. Although you're not really enjoying Bob Dylan unless you're listening to the lyrics, of course. Well, you might just like the sounds. And, you yeah, know, yeah, but like, we're, like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. you're missing out, yeah. basically. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of subtleties and he's, you know, very political and I do like his music. And I also like other people's interpretation of his music. It's, it's really rich. Although, you know, he's not lacking in attention. There's a lot of other very interesting, very important... I mean, you have to think about what, what's the function of that kind of a prize. Yeah, uh, I agree. I totally agree with your assessment, it, by the way. Uh, he's not lacking in accolades. I'm not saying he's not hasn't made a great contribution to the written hmm. word or anything. Like... Um, there's a lot of people to give that award to. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know. And uh, would you have said that he's 
in terms of literature and not in terms of music, would you say that he's had cultural impact that's changed things? I'm not sure that's true. I would say that he definitely has a strong impact in culture in general, definitely in music. And in terms of imagery, sure. And as a character, definitely. But in terms of literature specifically, I'm not sure where I've ever seen distinct traces of that. No, I do I do think there's traces of that to be found, especially with the sort of a train of thought mode of expressing yourself. Yeah. Um, I think you can see traces of that definitely. But him specifically? Yeah, him specifically, but also as an extension of the sort of beat generation yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Like nothing exists in a vacuum. So, no. uh, but I think you can see that. But then again, I, I like... Also, I like the idea of thinking a bit outside the box, yeah. honestly, sure. Uh, sure. When, when dealing out prices like that. But uh, ultimately, like I said, he's not missing an accolade, so maybe give it to someone who, who might get a boost from it, basically, and, and maybe bring some, some attention to something that hasn't already gotten the attention of a generation of people, right? It's interesting, because although he's a bit out of box, in some ways he's super safe. Yeah. People like his music. You know, Some people don't, but, you know, he's well-liked. He's a legend. And what's the function of the Nobel Literature Prize? That's the interesting thing about it. It, yeah, it kind of opens the possibility of the function. So I like that aspect of it. But it is sort of, if you're just going to pat legends mm. on the back, mm. then what's the function of that? Do you think he cared? No, I don't actually. I think, honestly, I think maybe it bothered him a bit. I think I, I, think I remember reading something about it too, that it bothered mm. him a bit. And he wasn't sure about receiving it even. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I think he would see like what we're talking about right now. Mm. I think mm. he would see that very well. He's a very intelligent person. So. Yeah. It's a strange situation. But I, I honestly really don't care that much about the Nobel Literature Prize. No, not really. Well, it was interesting. Last round, it was uh, Peter Hanke and um, her name is difficult to pronounce. Olga yeah. Tokashuk. And, I've been meaning uh, to read her book, actually. It yeah. It looks I'm, super interesting. I'm currently reading uh, Flights, which so far seems very promising. Yeah. And uh, they're both very interesting authors and quite, you know, different people. Yeah. Petrahanka has had some controversies around him. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's a very interesting author, absurdist. I'd like to read more of him. Yeah. Um, I like when the, the prices sort of bring someone to my mm, attention. Yeah. Rather than just bring someone to my attention that has had my attention mm, for yeah. many years. Yeah. yeah. You know, for me personally, it's not useful for Bob Dylan to get the <laughs> uh, prize. No. Uh, it's kind of superfluous. Yeah, but uh, it's not, it's not as if I really care. It's not an institution that brings me one way or the other. Do you think other. anybody would start listening to him after just finding that out and haven't? No. I'm sure, I mean, how many? There are like 7 billion people in yeah. the world. Probably one or two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's someone who, you know, I meant to check out his music. Now he's got... Probably somebody who's like only listening to classical music and only reads Nobel literature winners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then they don't check out his music, they just read his text. Yeah, they read his text. <laughs> like... Which, you know, I'm sure it would be fine as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it would hold up. So, so whoever that person is, I congratulate yeah. you on... Discovering this fresh new face. author, <laughs> Bob Dylan. Fresh old face. Fresh old face. Yeah. Old fresh face. Oh, Bobby fresh face. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's it's for today? Yeah, I think we've had a here. nice post summary, post discussion, a nice post post modern, post mortem, post adventure. Yeah, post mortal, post mortal. <laughs> yeah, we reached beyond mortality. Yeah. And what awaits us, nobody nobody knows, just like Turin Turambar. 
post-pleasure podcasts. That's a good post, thing. Post-pleasure <laughs> society. That's what we should aspire to. <laughs> so, thank you again for yeah. today. Thanks for everything. You we'll can see you in the next episode. Yeah. As ever, you can get in touch with us through pleasantmovies at podcast.com. Um, <laughs> you can't. No, you can't. You can, as always, you can get in touch with us through unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. That's right. And the music is made by Umulium. The track is called... Intimacy. Intimitat. <laughs> Intimacy, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, because it's slightly more intimate, these um, post-script uh, episodes. Yeah, it's, it's actually about uh, like a Frankenstein's monster. And it's search for intimacy. Oh. So it ties well in with the <laughs> sort of monster discussion we've oh. been having in the episode. Mm, that's nice. Yeah, so we'll see you next time, folks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.